tonight. We're in Romans chapter 2, and we left off in verse 17. Romans 2, verse 17 this evening. Some of you may have come tonight just with a special request, a special burden that's on your heart, and the Lord knows. And so as we prepare to go to prayer, prepare to give that to Him. Just, God, this has been weighing on me all day. It's been weighing on me all week. I just want to give it to you. Scripture tells us to cast our cares upon Him because He cares for us. So let's pray together. Father, we thank You that You know us, that You know the details of what's going on in our lives We claim your word, your promise to us to give you our cares, to give you our burdens. So we lay those at your feet. We put those things in your hands. Do that right now, just in your heart to the Lord. Now just allow God to speak to you through his voice, his still small voice, through the Holy Spirit. Let's just take a few moments to listen to him. Father, now as we direct our attention to your word, we pray that you would bless your word, that you would bring life through your word, that we would understand our desperate need for you. Pray for a fresh filling and baptism of the Holy Spirit. We know it's not by power or by might, but by your spirit. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, think of your favorite sports team for just a moment. And think of all of the trash talking that tends to go with professional sports. It seems to happen that one team's over here and another team's over here and going throughout the week and especially as it leads towards bigger games, playoff games, Super Bowls. And let's just say that one team really decides to talk it up, yuck it up, lots of trash talking. Then the game's played and they lose terribly. All mouths are stopped, huh? All of a sudden, the trash talking just stops. Let's say there's someone that's on trial. Think of someone that's being placed on trial. They're boasting, they're arrogant, I'm innocent. Then all of a sudden, there's some evidence that was presented that they didn't anticipate. You see it all over them. Their mouths are stopped. Maybe it's a discussion. Let's call it a discussion between a husband and a wife, right? That's the Christian term for fight. When... (laughs) Christian couples fight, they discuss, right? So you're having a discussion over some spending that's taken place. Someone in the marriage, no, I didn't spend that. I didn't spend that. I don't know where that came from. That's the mystical target charge. <laughs> then all of a sudden, here comes the receipt, right? And all mouths are stopped. I remember on one occasion, my brother and I went to a movie that we weren't supposed to go to. We had some pretty good and strict rules on movies uh, growing up. So we had it all planned out of one PG movie that we were told our parents we were going to while we went to an R-rated movie. And it was like three weeks later, it was Sunday afternoon, my dad says, boys, I want to have you sit down in the living room and have a little talk with you, but I want you separated. So my brother was out of the room and it was my turn with dad and he says, on this date, and he lists the date, did you go to such and such a movie? And I say, yeah, Dad, I've, I did. And he's like, well, what's it about? I'd done my research, <laughs> even though I hadn't went to the movie. And I told him what it was about. And he's like, did you sh- sure you didn't go see this movie? And he said it. Now, someone with a lot of intellect would figure out that they were busted at this point in the journey. <laughs> but I stuck with my story, and I lied about it. And he said, you sure this is what you want to tell me? I'm like, yep. And then he's like, all right, go out and go out. And then he brings my brother in. And my brother told the truth about the movie. And we were baffled by the fact that, how did dad know? And our mouths were stopped, literally. They were absolutely stopped. And it wasn't until we were in adulthood that he let us in on the secret. He happened to do our laundry. And he found the ticket stubs in your pockets, in our pockets of I'm sure they, my brother made that mistake. I'm sure it was probably him. But. Well, tonight's theme of the Bible study is all mouths are stopped. The excuses are done before God, 
And God brings us to a place of seeing our need for his grace and salvation in our lives. Before we can understand the good news of the gospel, and it's past tense, but also present tense in our lives this evening, we have to understand our sin. We have to know the depth of it, our depth of our depravity, why we need Jesus Christ to save us and to continue to work in our lives. I hope in the next few weeks especially that our understanding of God's grace is going to expand. We realize how much that God's given us his unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor, not treating us according to our sins. And it is the moment that we got saved, but it's ongoing in our lives. Sin doesn't stop. It continues in in our lives. But yet God continues to pour out his grace upon us. What we've seen so far in the book of Romans is from chapter 1, verse 17, is Paul does bring us into this courtroom to show us different types of people and how we're all guilty before God, how our mouths are stopped before him. The first was the unbeliever, the atheist, the the pagan, the hedonist, the person that says, I don't believe in God. God says you're still held accountable because of the revelation of creation, whether you accept or reject God based on creation, have no background in the word of God. Then last week, we saw the person coming into the courtroom that's the religious person, but it's trusting in their religion. Now, this week, it focuses in on the super-religious, the uber-goober-religious, and it's the Jews. And the Jews would tend to trust in their works instead of Christ. And so, whether it's the complete pagan, or it's the religious, or it's the super-religious, by the time we get to verse 20, where we're going to stop in chapter 3, we'll go into chapter 3, verse 20, we'll see that we all need the grace of God. Now, I need you to make an agreement with me, okay? Make a little covenant between you and the Lord is you have to come back next week because this week is all the bad news and next week is all of the good news, all right? So I'd hate to leave you with all the bad news. So let's look in verse 17 of chapter 2. Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God. The word Jew, it means praise. It's those that are born of the nation of Israel ethnically. And they were resting in the fact that they were Jewish, that they were God's chosen people. They're resting upon the law, and they're making their boast in God in a negative way. There's a way to boast in God and his grace and his mercy that he's pursued us and found us. But then there's an overconfidence of putting our boast in the Lord in a negative way, in a negative direction. So here's the first warning, and it's this. Don't trust in religion. Don't trust in religion. That's the message to the children of Israel. Here they are rejecting Christ, rejecting Christ's grace, and trusting in the fact that they're Jews, trusting in religion, trusting in the law. We have our Bibles, and we're, we're a movement that loves the Word. We're a movement that loves the Scripture, and we, we teach the Scripture line upon line. But if we don't get the main point of the Scripture, which is Jesus Christ, Him crucified, a relationship with him, loving him, loving one another, then we could be just like the Jewish people of Paul's day that think having the word of God is enough. They felt that they were right with God simply because they had been given the word of God without getting the point. And the point is Jesus Christ. You've seen it maybe at times in your own lives, met people for sure, where they know the scriptures, they study the scriptures, they can give you the answers, but they don't know Jesus Christ. At some point, they've trusted in the Word of God instead of trusting in Jesus Christ. The Word of God should lead us to a relationship with Jesus Christ. Amen? So we look at verse 18, and there's a lot of overconfidence in this. And know His will and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law. So they knew what God wanted. They knew what God expected. And they would give thumbs up to the things that are excellent. They would approve the things that are excellent, and then being instructed out of the law, teaching from the law. And notice the overconfidence in verse 9. And are confident that you yourselves are a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness. This is what they're confident of. That they're guiding the blind. That they're a light to those who are in darkness without seeing the fact that they're blind. Without seeing the fact that they're in darkness. 
And that's what religion can do if we're, we're not careful. Before long, we think that we're helping others and we're guiding others and we're a light to those that are in the darkness without applying Jesus and the gospel to our own hearts and lives first. How many people that have taught Sunday school, that have went on missions trips, that have write tithe checks, pastors that have taught the word of God had never come to the place of seeing their own need for Jesus Christ, seeing their own blindness, their own darkness that is inside of their lives. This is amazing to presume. And we shouldn't presume of ourselves that I'm a light to, to the dark and I'm a guide to those who are blind. We should see ourselves as I'm blind and Christ made me see. I was in darkness and Jesus brought me to the light. I'm pointing people to Jesus. Jesus is the guide. Jesus is the light to those who are in darkness. In verse 20, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. So this is what they assume, that they're instructing the foolish, that they're teaching the babes. They could fill out quite the resume, the spiritual resume. But here's the kicker, is they have a form of knowledge and truth in the law. This is what's dangerous about religion, is from the outside it looks good. The Pharisees looked really good from the outside, but their hearts were corrupt on the inside. Religion doesn't deal with the heart. It doesn't. A relationship with Jesus Christ deals with the heart. But on the outside, there's the form of godliness. There's the form of the knowledge and the truth. Paul warns about this group of people in 2 Timothy 3, verse 4 and 5. He says, Traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. So the heart's wicked and self-seeking, but the outside looks good, and that's what makes it deceptive. There's this form of godliness, but they're denying the power. See, we want more than to just go to church. We want more than to take a men's study, to take a women's study. We want more than to memorize verses. All these things are good things, but it's just the form. We want the power source, and the power is being plugged into Jesus Christ. Agreed? Most of us probably have a cell phone. If you don't, you're blessed for it. Most of us have this leash in our pocket, and you've got to plug it into the power source. And we need to be plugged into Jesus Christ. And the religious, they have the form of knowledge, but they don't have the relationship with Christ. I know how easy this is. Growing up in a Christian home, going to Christian school from K to 12, after that, going to Bible college, I've been surrounded by the things of the church. And it's easy to have the answers, to say the right thing, to have the form of knowledge, to even have it come off of my tongue, growing up, but not having committed my heart and life to Jesus Christ. You can get religion. You can get the right thing to say. You can understand what you need to say around Christians and say, praise the Lord, brother. God's good. You know, all these kind of phrases that we throw out that are wonderful things to say if we mean them, and then they're sincere. But friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, if you're having a bad day, it's okay to say it as a Christian. So, because I just had a terrible day. I know that God's good and I trust him, but I don't know if I want to relive today. Or Really, everything's went fine in my day. It's been a wonderful day in that sense, but I've just had a rotten attitude. That's reality. You know, that, that's us. But religion doesn't do that. Religion always puts the best foot forward. Religion always has the form of knowledge without the reality. We want the reality. In verse 2, you therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? This is convicting to the Jews, convicting especially to the scribes and the Pharisees and the rabbis, those that were teaching. They're teaching others. Here you are overconfident that you're this guide to the blind, but you, do you teach yourself? And it seems like for some reason, when it comes to teaching, that once we teach it, we seem to get of ourselves a get-out-of-jail-free card. And we think, well, okay, I'm kind of done with that information because I've taught it. And it's almost toxic. 
One of the things that we're doing right now as a pastoral staff is we're reading a book called Dangerous Calling by uh, David Tripp. And you could pray for us. We're, we're being challenged by a group of pastors. And what is being discovered is that pastors are leaving the ministry at something like fifteen to 16,000 pastors in America are leaving the ministry per month. Every month, fifteen to 16,000 pastors are resigning from the ministry for different reasons, but a lot of them are moral failures. They, they commit these, these moral failures. And I think a lot of it comes back to this where we're teaching, but we're not receiving. And so first looking at our own hearts and our own lives and saying, I need this. I need to preach the gospel to myself. I need to understand that I'm a sinner that needs the, the grace of God. One of the things that is challenging for me when I leave, it seems to hit me, especially on Sundays, after giving a message three times, is Saturday night, Sunday at 9, Sunday at 11, is the information, I know it. I know the information. We could sit down on a Sunday afternoon and I could tell you the information that I just went over. A lot of my week is wrapped up in preparing these messages. But something that I wrestle with and I ask the Lord, is my life going to be different when I go home on Sunday, Sunday afternoon? Because there's this danger that happens in me. Well, well, I'm giving it out. I'm giving it out to others. But am I receiving it? And we want to receive it first. Not that anybody's ever going to be perfect. I'm never, I'm never going to be perfect. I'm not perfect today. I won't be perfect till I go home to be with the Lord. Isn't heaven going to be wonderful? We're going to know each other in a perfect state. But until then, we're, we're all going to wrestle. But that's the challenge to those who are teaching and those who are sharing Am I taking my own medicine? Here I'm giving it out to others, but am I receiving it myself? This must be harder than we realize because we see with Solomon that he was potentially the wisest man who ever lived. He wrote the book of Proverbs. He instructed his son about the woman of folly. The only problem was is he had about a thousand women of folly. The scripture tells us that with his wives and concubines, he had a thousand wives. He instructed against that. And he, much of the Proverbs warns against this abuse of sex and sexual sin and the woman of folly, but yet he ran into it at a rapid speed. It, it wasn't because he didn't know. It was for some way he was giving it out, but he wasn't receiving it. People were coming all over the world to hear Solomon give words of wisdom but at the end of his life, he had fallen into idolatry because he'd married all of these women that didn't know the one true living God. And that's the last comment that we have upon his life, and it's heartbreaking. And it brings us to this question, you therefore who teach another, do you teach yourself? Continuing on, you who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor or hate idols, do you rob temples? So he's asking this question. It reminds a lot of the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus said, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But if you've lusted in your heart towards a woman, you've committed adultery. You, you've heard it said to not commit murder. But if you've been angry in your heart, you've committed murder already. What Romans is doing is stopping our mouth. What Romans is doing is causing us to see our own depravity. With questions like this, we go, oh yeah, there's been tons of times where I've shared stuff or I've taught stuff, but yet I haven't applied it to my, my own life. If we're honest, that's true. How many times do we, you know, share things with our kids and then the next minute maybe we do the exact same, same thing that we shared with them not to do? Like, hey, don't get frustrated with your sister. Don't get frustrated with your brother. Don't raise your voice at them. This is how God wants us to talk to each other. And then 15 minutes later, you're raising your own voice. And you're like, ah, you know, here I go again. The whole point of this is not to beat up on ourselves, but to bring us to the grace of God. To bring us to the point of seeing that we need God's grace in our lives, past tense and present tense. Verse 23, you who make your boast in the law do you dishonor God through breaking the law? So the Jews, they would boast in honoring God through the law, but they were breaking it, but they failed to see the ways in which they were breaking it. 
And that's what religion does apart from Christ, is it elevates us where we're looking down upon others, and we don't see the areas in our own lives where we're breaking the word of God. This is what I pray for me, for all of us, by the time tonight that we get to chapter 3, verse 20, is that we realize that we need the grace of God just as much and more as anybody else. And we don't look down on people. We don't go, oh, they're such a terrible, rotten sinner. They really need the, the grace of God. Or we realize, I really need the grace of God. I've broken the law of God. I continue to, to break the law of God. Verse 24, it says, For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. So because of the way the Jews were living, then those who were not God's people, the Gentiles, blasphemed God. And how many times does our actions cause an unbeliever to blaspheme God? The intention of believers is to sing God's praise, to declare God's glory. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, I was reading this this morning. It struck me. It says, but you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praise of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who have obtained mercy from the Lord. Amazing. That's our job to proclaim God's goodness. We're a chosen people, a set-apart generation, but how many times do our actions cause the name of God to be blasphemed? Verse 25 switches gears a little bit and deals with the issue of circumcision. Verse 25 and 26, for circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law, but if you're a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if any uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? Are you lost? Yeah. <laughs> Here's the warning. The warning for us is pretty simple here. It's not trusting in associations. Not trusting in associations. It was easy for the children of Israel to trust in the fact that they were circumcised. God had given circumcision to the children of Israel, to Abraham and his descendants. And the teaching that had come from rabbis was this. The rabbis had said that no circumcised man would see hell. This is what got them out of God's judgment, was the fact that they were circumcised. Another rabbi said this, God swore to Abraham that no one who was circumcised should be sent to hell. Is that in scripture anywhere from Genesis to Revelation? No. But they were saying we're saved by God by association. We're circumcised. We're Jews. And so we can rest in the Lord in this way. It's similar to this. Some who trust in church membership to go to heaven. They say, well, I'm a member at First Church. No one ever says I'm a member at Fifth Church. I've never seen a Fifth Church in town. But you're a member of First Church. <laughs> Great. But do you know Christ is your Savior? Have you given your heart to Him? Have you trusted in Him and believed in Him? Well, I'm saved because I went through confirmation. Okay. Wonderful. But have you trusted in Christ for salvation? I'm saved because I'm baptized. Well, baptism can't save you. Baptism is that public declaration of faith. Are you a believer? Well, I'm Catholic. Okay, great. You're, you're Catholic. But are you a believer in Jesus Christ as your, your Savior? Well, I'm, I'm a non-denom. What's a non-denom? You know, I go to a non-denominational church, and you know, we're, we're pretty hip and cool. And, well, great. So you're a non-denom. Wonderful. But do you trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior? See how easy it is to put our confidence in an association? Well, my parents were believers. My grandfather was, was a pastor. I think we're losing this one. Nobody really says it anymore. Well, I'm an American, so I must be a Christian, right? I think that one is, is well passed, passed away. The intent of circumcision was always to represent what had happened inwardly in the heart. But over time, it had just become an outward ritual. So we look at verse 27, going down to verse 29. And will not the physically 
And will not the physical uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you, even with your written code and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. What matters is the heart. It's matters of the heart. God always intended that circumcision would be an outward sign of a heart that belonged to God. In Deuteronomy, we see this in chapter 30, verse 6. It says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul that you may live. And so Paul's saying here in these verses, 27 through 29, it's not the outward act, but it's what's happened inwardly. And he's speaking to the Jews and he's saying, if nothing has happened in your heart towards God, then you're not a Jew truly. This is hugely offensive to the Jewish people. If they would say, you know, your circumcision is as un- uncircumcised, they look down on the uncircumcised. They look down on the Gentiles. And they're saying if it doesn't mean anything in your heart, it's absolutely meaningless. And when God starts to step on our associations, it's a little bit painful, isn't it? When God starts to say, you know what, it's really not a concern if, if you're a weekly attender of this. Or if you're a member of this, or you've been confirmed with this, you begin to have those discussions with people, and the back of their hair starts to stand up just a little bit. In Jeremiah 4, verse 4, it says, Circumcise yourself to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your hearts. That's pretty descriptive. (laughs) Colossians 2, verse 9 and 11, speaks in the New Testament of the circumcision of the heart. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you've been given fullness in Christ, who is the head, over every power and authority. In him, you are also circumcised. in the putting off of sinful nature, not with circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ. By Christ. Salvation is of the heart. Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth, the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Not just an intellectual confession of Christ. Even the demons believe and tremble. But it's a surrendering of the heart. It's a trusting of the heart to Jesus Christ. I know how lost that you can be inside of a church. I know how lost you can be inside of the walls of a Christian school. Kids walking around in Christian schools and Christian homes, people coming and packing churches doesn't make you any less of a sinner. Me growing up in a Christian family, going to Christian school, I came this close to going to hell because I knew nothing of Christ. I knew nothing of my own sin. I knew nothing of my own depravity and felt like I had a get out of jail free card because I could quote verses. And I knew what was right, and I knew what was wrong, and I could approve it, and I could say, this is what you're supposed to do, but I knew nothing of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So never think that there isn't people inside this room tonight that God wants to reach. You may have been coming for years, and the light bulb hasn't gone on. You're thinking somehow that your works are going to save you. For some reason, you haven't surrendered your your love and your life to Jesus Christ. There's this pressure put upon you to fit in with your family, to put in with your friends of, I've got to come, come to church. Our children that are growing up in our homes, that are growing up in the children's ministry wing here, you know what they need? They need a move of the Spirit in their hearts to bring them to the place of being convicted to believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior. Did you catch the the end of this chapter? It says, it's of the Spirit. In the spirit, not in the letter. The law doesn't transform hearts. Rules don't transform hearts. Religion doesn't transform hearts. The spirit, the spirit is what does that convicting inside of the heart to where now we're living for the praise of God, not the praise of men. Religion and association lives for men. I've got to please men. I've got to look good for men. I've got to put this mask on for what people think about me. I want to teach this, lead this, 
serve here, serve there because I want the personal accolades. When the Spirit of God touches our hearts, it gets flipped upside down, doesn't it? We go, God, you love me. You've touched me. You've changed me. I don't want to do these things because I want to honor you. So we're warned about trusting in religion. We're warned about trusting in associations. And this is the beautiful thing, is once our heart is surrendered to Jesus Christ, church becomes very, very meaningful, doesn't it? Serving becomes very meaningful. Things get flipped right side up. So it's not that these things are bad. It's not that these things are wrong. They just need to be in their proper place. They need to flow out of relationship with Jesus Christ. If you're there in that place tonight, I'd love to talk to you after service. If you've got questions, we'd love to sit down and try to wrestle through those questions. But get to that place of surrendering your heart and life to Christ. We're going to look at the next uh, 20 verses here as Paul continues to bring home this point that all mouths are stopped. What advantage then has the Jew or what profit is circumcision? So that's the logical question after chapter 1, or chapter 2, excuse me, is, is there any advantage to, to the Jew or is there any profit to circumcision? The answer, verse 2, much in every way, chiefly because to them was committed the oracles of God. So there is an inherent blessing in just receiving the word of God. And the nation of Israel had been given the law of God. Verse 3, For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? So you've got individuals, in this example, the nation of Israel, who had unbelief. Does that make God's faithfulness of no effect? Verse 4, certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. Quoting Psalms 51, verse 4. Here's the lesson here for us, is don't judge God's faithfulness through the lens of man's unfaithfulness. Let me say that again to you. Don't judge God's faithfulness through the lens of man's unfaithfulness. Here's the argument. So the children of Israel were unfaithful. So does that mean that God was not faithful? Certainly not. Absolutely not. God forbid. But this is something that we see today, don't we? And we read about today and we talk about is go, well, this believer let me down. This pastor let me down. This church hurt me. And so then for some reason, we start to view God through the lens of other believers' unfaithfulness. God's faithfulness hasn't changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. We were the ones who were unfaithful. And Satan would love for us to go down that road, is view God through his own lens. Don't view God through the lens of other people's unfaithfulness. This is a lesson we're going to learn in following Christ. As you follow him, you don't follow people. You love people, you serve people, you're committed to people, but you follow Jesus Christ and you love and you serve him. And this is the question. Well, if Israel was unfaithful, does that mean that God was not faithful? No, no God is true and every man is a liar. The quote from Psalms 51 verse 4, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged, it leads us to the cross. It leads us to God's grace because our words actually condemn us instead of justifying us. Our words bring us to the grace of God. Verse 5, But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not. For then how will God judge the world? So here's the next argument. So if my unrighteousness, being sinful, not doing what's right... It demonstrates the holiness of God. It shows how holy God is. Then is God wrong in bringing justice? Is God wrong in bringing judgment? Well, let's bring it into the human realm. If someone commits a crime, that then highlights justice because they're arrested, they're brought into court, and a judge says, here's your sentence. Is it then unjust because of my unrighteousness to highlight that there is justice in the society? No, absolutely not. It makes complete sense. So why would we impose that upon God? I'm unrighteous. It demonstrates his righteousness, but it doesn't then cause God to be irresponsible in holding me accountable when he judges the world. We're judging God 
when we say he's unloving in being a just judge. Does that make sense? And that's the popular word of the day, is a loving God wouldn't send people to hell. A loving God wouldn't bring justice. But we are placing ourselves in that position of being judges. Verse 7 and 8. Let me encourage you, it gets a little bit easier. I know intellectually it's like, man, it's Wednesday night. I've had a long day. And I'm not sure what circumcision even is. Hang with me. Verse 7 and 8. For if the truth of God is increased through my lie to his glory, why am I still judged as a sinner? So this is if someone lies quote-unquote, for the glory of God, are they still held accountable for it? Verse 8, And why not say, let us do evil that good may come? As we are slanders reported, and some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. The end never justifies the means. I bring this up simply as an illustration, not as judgment. There was a worship leader in 2008 that wrote a song called Healer. And it was a really popular song. It was on Hillsong's worship stuff. And he came out and said that he was terminally ill of cancer. And this was his song of faith, asking that God would, would heal him. And maybe you, you've, you've heard this song. And then it came out over a period of time that he was lying, that he never had cancer. And all of this was some kind of thing that he cooked up in his own imagination. And some would say, well, God was glorified. There's all these hits on YouTube and this song sung in churches all over the world. Yes, God was glorified, but does it justify lying for the glory of God? And he came to repentance and was broken over the choices that, that he had made. And that's what God deals with here. That's what he's saying here is it's never right to lie for the glory of God. You know, you may, you may feel kind of bad about your testimony because it doesn't involve jail time. You know, and you, you, you weren't a drug dealer and you, you hear people that did have jail time and were drug dealers and, man, we're so thankful for what God's done in their life. And then you're kind of, well, I've got to try to beef up my rebellion a little bit, you know, and make it sound worse than, than, than it really was for the glory of God, you know, to, to win people to Christ. Have you ever thought that your testimony is, is that God spared you from all that stuff? And your testimony is your testimony. So if you did have jail time and you were a drug dealer, God saved you by his grace, that's your testimony. If you didn't do all that stuff and you were prideful in your heart and arrogant in your heart and boastful in your heart, we're all guilty and we needed God's Savior. You tell your story because it's God's story, but don't embellish it. You know, I was out fishing and I caught this fish about this big. You know, how many people got baptized? 10,000 people got baptized, you know. It's like, how many people were at the outreach? Five, 50,000 people were at the outreach. None of that stuff. 10 people got baptized. Praise God. 10 people got baptized. 50 people came out to the outreach. Praise the Lord. Tell the story as it is. And that's what verse 7 and 8 deals with. Verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. So Paul knows our tendency that maybe we would start to judge somebody who's lied for the glory of God. And Paul's saying, we're not better than them. We're all guilty. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that all are under sin. We're all in that place where we're guilty and we need the penalty for sin. In verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. As there one person who's never sinned, only Christ there's none righteous. No, not one. There's none that can claim perfection. If there's any tonight that would claim sinless perfection, we just want to get a cup of ice cold water. And when you're unaware, we'll throw it right in your face. No, we won't do that. Well, maybe we would if you were claiming sinless perfection. There's none righteous. If you're claiming sinless perfection, we'll just talk to your family. You know, you talk to my family. This is true. Verse 10 is true. There is none righteous. No, not one. There's none who understand. There's none who seeks after God. This humbles us. We like to think of ourselves in these terms that we sought after God, that we were a seeker of truth, that we understood. But the scripture tells us from God's perspective, there's none who understand. 
There's none who seek after God. They've all turned aside. They've all together become unprofitable. There's no one who does good. No, not one. It wasn't that God saved us because he needed us. You know, sometimes it kind of drives me nuts when we talk about we got to make God famous. Give me a break. Like, like we're going to make him famous. <laughs> and I understand the sentiment behind that is we want God to, to be glorified and we want his, his glory to be seen. God's not desperate for fame. And God's not desperate for us to try to make him famous. God's perspective is us is we were not profitable to him. He didn't look down and go, man, I really need you. Without you, I don't know how my will's going to be done and how my kingdom's going to come. He loves us. He values us. He wants to save us and spend all of eternity with us. Blows our mind, but he doesn't need us. I think it's a wrong theology if we build it on this concept that somehow God needs us. He loves us, but we weren't profitable to him. And then it says that we've all turned aside. There's none who does good, no, not one. Maybe we've asked this question, why do bad things happen to good people? Well, the real answer is there's no good people. That's the truth of what this is saying. It says there's none that are good. There's none that are righteous. If I want to sit down with God and have a conversation with God and say, God, I think I'm kind of slighted here, here, and here. I think you should give me what I deserve here, here, here. And God goes, well, let me list all the things that you don't see. Okay, into conversation. I'm done, right? It's amazing that God hasn't treated us according to our sins. And he describes our sinful condition. Their throat is an open tomb. That's a great description of our mouths apart from Christ. When we speak, it's death. Their mouths are an open tomb. With their tongues, they've practiced to see the poison of asps, which is a poisonous snake, is under their lips. When they open their mouth, they're deceitful. Death comes out. They're filled with poison, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. And we know that the mouth reveals the heart, the condition of their heart. Their feet are swift to shed blood. We're, we're quick to go to destruction. Destruction or misery are in their ways. That's what our life is apart from Jesus. And the way of peace they have not known. May I just remind you, if you feel like it's difficult walking with Christ, just remember what it was like when you weren't walking with him. You're, you're in the way of peace. You know the Prince of Peace. You're his son. You're his daughter. You're going to heaven. And apart from Christ. There's no peace. They've not known peace. Remember when you first got saved and you went to bed and you laid your head on the pillow with peace? Money can't buy that. Success can't buy that. That's a result of being in a relationship with Jesus Christ. There's no fear of God before their eyes. And we get to our last two verses. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and that all of the world may become guilty before God. Here's the verdict. This is God's verdict. All are guilty before God. Every mouth is stopped. The unbeliever who's never been around the word of God, the religious, the super religious, all of our mouths are stopped. We're guilty before the Lord. The law shows us this. The law reveals it to us. In verse 20, therefore by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. We're going to talk about this a whole bunch more next week. Read ahead. We're going to end chapter 3 next week. But the word justified, it means declared righteous. The law is never going to declare somebody righteous. Going to church is never going to declare someone righteous. Giving money to the poor, going on missions trips, praying, fasting and praying, you list it. Your systems of works, your morality, it can't make you righteous. It can't right the wrongs that we have done. The only thing that can declare us righteous is faith in the blood of Jesus, being justified freely by his grace. You know, it is a little bit of a bummer to come to a Bible study and hear one thing. You're a sinner. You're a sinner and you're a sinner. I'm going to say this in love. I'm going to say it to myself. I'm going to say it to us as a group. We deserve hell. 
That's the reality of the scriptures. We are so bad, so corrupt, so depraved that we deserve that. God is completely just in giving that to us. But instead, he gave us the grace in Jesus Christ. See, if I in any way diminish or undermine the holiness of God, the wrath of God, I have just subtracted from the grace of God. I've just subtracted from the goodness of God. Jesus went to the cross and he took the punishment for my sins. It wasn't God going, well, Eric, you know, he'll just kind of let you off on this one. And well, I love you. And I tolerate all things and boys will be boys and well, girls will be girls, and so everything's fine. Like, no, that's wrong. That's sin. It's disgusting. It deserves punishment. But I love you enough to give you my son. And my son became the object of my wrath. He became the object of my punishment so that I could extend forgiveness to you. And this is what's so mind-blowing about the gospel and the goodness and the grace of God as he gives it apart from works. It's a complete gift of grace. And that's what we hold on to. And that's what we rejoice in. And that's the crux and the center of our relationship with Jesus Christ. So as we come and take communion tonight, let's celebrate his grace. Let's stop and consider and not allow communion just to become a religious activity, but to remember his broken body. You hold the bread in his hand, his broken body. Remember his shed blood. Jesus, thank you for the penalty that you were for me upon the cross. Think of his suffering. Think of the thorns. Think of the whip and the nails. And Jesus, thank you for loving me. And as we then reflect on our circumstances, God, it's been a tough week, I'll be honest. It's been a tough 10 years. I just want to thank you I'm not going to hell. (laughs) I want to thank you that this is the worst it's ever going to get. I want to thank you for Jesus. And I, I fix my eyes upon you. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, you haven't come to that place, and you've been in the walls of the church, but you know you're lost, as we come to take communion, come find someone on the ministry team and let them know, I'm ready to put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You know that you trusted that blue chair that you're in tonight. You made a decision. You looked at the chair, and you said, I believe that this chair is going to hold my weight. And it did. Praise the Lord. And you also know whether you've trusted in Christ, whether you've surrendered to him, or you've cried out to him, Jesus, I believe in you. Be the Lord of my life. I wonder how many church-going people that they'll be in hell. I wonder how many people will say, well, I went to a church that taught the Bible verse by verse and got a little bit arrogant as they said that. God says, you never trusted me. You were trusting in your verse-by-verse teaching. You were trusting in going to church. Wouldn't that be sad? Wouldn't that be heartbreaking? There's one thing that I'm concerned about as your friend and your pastor is I want you to be there. I want you to be there. I want to be there. When we get to heaven, let's look around. Oh, man, praise the Lord, you're here. Oh, man, praise the Lord, you're here. Oh, awesome. What I don't want is, wow, you were my pastor all those years and you're not here? You never trusted in Christ in your heart? You served? You were on the worship team? You were on the sound ministry? You went on on missions trips? You're, You're not here? You're my son? You're my daughter? You heard these stories, but they were just stories, and you're not here? Why is there going to be tears in heaven? Because there's going to be people in hell, and it's going to hurt, and it's going to hurt real bad, because there are going to be people that we love. You're not here. And Jesus comes, and he wipes away those tears, and the only way that he could remove the pain of knowing that a loved one's in hell is because of his power and his grace. Don't miss it. I'm thankful that we teach the word here. But the word needs to lead you to Jesus. I'm thankful that you come on a Wednesday night. But 
coming on a Wednesday night is not going to save you. Only Jesus can save you. Don't settle for religion. Press into him. It's not walking down an aisle that's going to save you. It's crying out to Jesus. It's an opportunity, though. Don't let it pass. The hardest thing to do is for a religious person to get saved. Because they go, people think I'm already saved. People think I've already given my heart and life to Jesus Christ. I marked it on my little application when I started serving at RMC. But now I'm coming to realize I've never given my heart and life to Jesus Christ. Who cares? Who cares? I understand. I know. I realize. I grew up in the religious system. And we're going to rejoice with you. But by all means, surrender your heart and your life to Jesus Christ. And then I want to encourage you. Look for the lost among the religious. Look for the lost among the religious. Don't assume just because someone goes to church that they know Christ is their Savior. And love them enough to say, I'm so thankful you go to church. I'm so thankful for that association that you have with the things of God. But have you given your heart and life to Christ? The things I hear you saying, the way that I see you living, it doesn't seem to line up with a life of, that's been given to Christ. And you can challenge me in that same way, but I want to challenge you. Do you know Christ? Because it sure would be heartbreaking to have somebody that's come to church that wasn't in heaven. Amen? So let's stand and pray together. Father, we, we come humbled tonight because we see ourselves in your word. We know we're guilty. We're sinners. It's not just that we were guilty in the past. It's that we're guilty in the present. There's enough in our hearts and our lives today to bring us under your judgment. We don't want to undermine that or diminish that, but we come to the cross and we see afresh what your sacrifice meant to us and the grace by which that we're saved. Father, you know the hearts. You, you know the hearts. As we sang tonight, you wrestle with our hearts. For those that need to come to you to be saved, to be your child, we pray tonight would be that night of salvation. Would you meet us in communion? In Jesus' name, amen.